Welcome to Developer News number 78 for Monday, February 3rd, 2014. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm C. John Capadia. I'm Eric Snyder. <laughs> and we're here to talk about something. We're all snowed in today. This is the third straight week of snowstorms uh, in, in the Philadelphia metro. Well, no, it's not really because I just went somewhere and it stormed on me. So it's the third straight week of snowstorms for me. Like Twister, they follow me. That's my theory. Um... And since we're snowed in, I might as well, why don't we start off by talking about our favorite remote working tools? Um, you know, kind of like working together as a team remotely. So I've got to say that I, I must vote up Google Docs um, just because of the fact it's a great little place to throw just about anything you need to share. Um, I don't like its presentations at all. I think their presentation tool is terrible, but I do use a spreadsheet. It's a whole lot more than I've ever used Excel. I don't know about you. I mean, for just a simple list of something, it's, it's very easy to use. And for the word tools, um, for the word processing, I have to. On that note, I have to say I'm pretty happy with uh, Google Hangouts video calls. Uh, you you stole mine. <laughs> Let's start again, uh, Eric. What do you really? <laughs> I think Google Hangouts is great. Yeah, because we use it for our, our st- daily stand up meetings, and pretty much everyone's remote today, and it works great. When you're using Google Hangout, does the person who started the call, is that the person that can kind of switch who is on camera by default? Is that the idea? And the rest of them are all fun. I've never started a call myself. I'm I'm guessing the person who initiated the call has some administrative control. But it's just really nice how you see all the people involved with the call at the bottom. And you kind of see them live video feed. And as people are talking, it switches over automatically. Oh, you think it's an automatic thing? That's pretty cool if it is. It is. No, I'm saying it is, actually. So if I'm talking, and I guess I'm talking loud enough compared to someone else, it'll switch over to me, and everyone sees me, and then if someone else talks, they see them. Hey, it's Joel. Hi. Hi, Joel. Hey, there you are. In I'm the here. not too distant future. Uh, very cool. Welcome welcome to the uh, Dev News. That's Joel Confino. Hello. Thank you. From snowy king of Prussia. Yes. Yes. Tell me about it. Um, yeah, we were just talking about our favorite uh, web tools, um, you know, for, yeah. for working remotely. Yeah, we like uh, FlowDoc. So at Hadle, we're 100% remote 100% of the time. Um, and so we do definitely use Google Docs. That really turns out to be – it's more than just like a document place. It really turns out to be your wiki um, because by putting links between the docs, you can basically – to be honest with you, I think at this point Google Docs is just as good or better in many cases than Confluence or other kind of wikis. Mm-hmm. And then uh, FlowDoc is a really nice chat tool, um, so so we really like FlowDoc a lot. Uh, uh, Google Google Docs. I, so I used to work somewhere that had a very extensive collection of Google Docs, and they used it in the same manner, uh, like as a wiki. It gets really, really out of control with um, uh, permissions and folders and subfolders, and the links are weird. Mm. I don't know. We 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 try we switched. We actually switched to GitHub Wiki. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've heard good things about and, that, yeah. And, and it was uh, better? For us, it was, yeah. Yeah, I don't feel Google Docs has, has as much structure as a wiki provides or can provide. No, so what we ended up doing was, or what we're actually kind of ended up, what I'm looking at doing is providing, uh, so it has folder structure, obviously. We put right. a lot of things out on there. Uh, I like the fact that you can add any kind of arbitrary type of document so you can add uh, artwork or something so for Hadle you know you can add marketing assets like images and things so that's parts nice the folder structure is fine and then just trying to put in um, index pages so like say you would go to a directory and it would be like marketing and there would be a bunch of stuff in there just putting in a high level index page which would contain links to the relevant uh, documents that would be you know under there so like a page that literally is just the purpose of it is links to other pages 
personally, when I've used SharePoint and things like that, I've ended up having to create those index pages anyway. So maybe I'm really comparing it against SharePoint and not, you know, maybe not as much uh, Confluence. Confluence. Yeah, I mean, Confluence is more sophisticated wiki in my opinion. But um, but yeah, I, I've used SharePoint. I would agree with you. <laughs> I was never a huge fan of the clunkiness of SharePoint personally. But yeah. And Flowdoc, the nice thing with that is imagine persistent chat tool, you know, kind of like HipChat. But it's more than that. That would be half of it. The other half is um, essentially a place where all the events that happen in our system, uh, meaning like anytime there's a GitHub uh, commit or anytime we do a new build or anytime somebody moves a card in Trello, um, a notification is shown in Flowdoc. And so it's like the central nervous center. So you don't have to send email for all this stuff because notifications are automatically happening for all this stuff. So let's review. <laughs> We've got uh, Hangouts. We've got Flowdoc. We've got Google Docs. GitHub Wiki. GitHub Wiki. Now, and I've been using, actually, from a JavaScript coding perspective, I've been using Plunker a lot lately. Um, that's been pretty cool for, like, just, you know, productivity and sharing code with other people. It kind of gives you a, a JavaScript testing IDE. Um, so I know when we were prototyping some AngularJS for the training, they, they want to know how to do different types of directives. I would just code right in Plunker and say... Uh, you know, add Angular to the project, boom, it's done. Click and point and then share it with everybody and ha it has all the sharing tools. That's kind of nice too. That is nice. Anything where like it um, updates in real time, like Trello when, when you use it yeah. for, you know, simple uh, management of uh, tasks and stuff. And when people move cards in Trello, everybody can see it. So for a while we, we use Skype for mm -hmm. screen sharing, which is actually semi-horrific. It, it always... <laughs> It always crashes in like 20 minutes. I'm, so I was interested to hear about the Google Hangouts because every time I've tried it, it's never had good enough resolution to do screen sharing. Yeah, we use screen sharing, but you're right. The resolution is not that great. It's not ideal. Well, Skype has that capability, but it always crashes like it always does. And then so I think what I've heard other teams doing where we may end up, even though this seems a little strange, is using GoToMeeting yeah. because it seems to have pretty stable screen sharing. Of all the online conference tools I've used, and I've used GoToMeeting for a while now, um, the account that I had, um, that's definitely the most stable one I've had. I've taught yeah. eight-hour courses with it, um, with no downs, no drops. But with some of these tools, like we used to do screen sharing, and then we would all look at a Trello board, and then we kind of thought, that's kind of funny because we don't need screen sharing because Trello automatically updates. So, you know, you can, you don't actually, you can all go to Trello and just say on a conference call, Hey, let's all go to Trello, but you don't need screen sharing. So it's kind of interesting. So some of these, some of these tools like Google docs or Trello that have the real time capability built in, you know, work really nice distributed. <laughs> and then I'll tell you my favorite tool, which <laughs> I have to laugh at this. I went to Weatherbug, right? Um, forgetting the fact that the last time I checked into Weatherbug, I was in North Carolina and it was 20 degrees in North Carolina. <laughs> and I checked today and opened it up and it was 61 degrees. <laughs> I'm, like, wow. I'm like, I want to go there now. <laughs> oh, well, we only have a couple news items today, mostly because we're all snowed in trying to get work done. Um, but let's go through them. So um, looks like we don't have any industry news or do we? Mostly it's just tech. Nothing uh, happens. Okay, nothing happened. No. Well, we do have um, <laughs> we do have a couple interesting articles here. So let's start out with the undocumented secrets of scope.watch. Right. So I'm uh, just getting into Angular myself. Mm -hmm. um, as you know, uh, since you offer the training. Yes. Uh, it, <laughs> the learning curve is, you know, it's not, a, it's not like a flat to gradual curve. It's a little steeper than that. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I didn't really know about Scope Watch before, um, but what what I really so I learned about that. So that's very cool. So you can basically um, set a watch on a scope. So uh, and then you can watch a particular property, which I guess people that do use it, you know, tend to say, oh, watch this property, and if and if it uh, gets updated, you know, fire off this function and do something, right? So that's right. You know, that's pretty pretty typical. What I didn't know, uh, well, I didn't know that either. But when then the, when I found out that not only can it watch a property, it takes an expression, not just a property name. So basically, you can set an exp- you can evaluate an expression on the scope. So the example on the the, the page that we're linked to, um, basically uh, evaluate the expression. You know, lions and tigers and bears, right? So <laughs> uh, if lions is true and tigers is true and bears is true. Uh, on the scope, then fire, you know, the second argument, which is a function. So that's very cool. That's very cool. Um, but then there's a, a pattern that, uh, let me see, who's the, Cameron Bomer, B-O-E-H-M-E-R. I hope I'm saying that correctly. I think you are, yeah. Uh, a very cool pattern that he suggests is uh, what if your scope um, is really a base class for your models? So that fits into the whole functional reactive programming model. Um, so basically if you say, so root scope new, right. And, and that'll be your, your model. And then you could watch, um, properties and expressions off of your model and then just react to it. So, uh, that's just, it's very cool. I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, the main reason people don't do that, uh, in general is because they want to have the standard, uh, automatic watching done. Is this smart enough to know, like, okay, well, this expression consists of these properties, so I'm only going to evaluate this when something that could affect this expression changes? I don't think so. Well, the thing is, this is actually what gets called internally when they use the for the for data binding anyway. Right. So, um, you know, this is this is already being called for two way right. data binding. It's I just it's just it's very neat. cool that it's not just watching a property. It's it's you can use an expression, and that expression, by the way, can invoke function. Yeah. So. You can basically do anything mm-hmm. um, when when something ha- when to to see uh, if that pro- basically you can decide if if something important really has changed. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, as cool. much as we all probably don't like flex, flex has had this feature as well. Actually, it's almost exactly like this. You can pass an expression for data binding, which is pretty cool. So it turns out a lot of people that are are new Angular people were flex people. Yeah, and exactly. uh, love <laughs> Angular for the reason it gives them what Flex yeah. gave them before, but it's in JavaScript. So, yeah, exactly. You're you're not far off that statement there. Um, and so, yeah, this is Cameron Bomer. It looks like silicon siliconconfidential.com will uh, siliconfidential.com, and we'll post a uh, a note to that in the show notes, which you can get to from uh, chariotsolutions.com/slash/devnews. All right, next article: Chrome apps now available for iOS. Now, this is really. I suppose they already were, (laughs) but um, what they've done is it looks like they've done some sort of uh, additional version of uh, PhoneGap or uh, Cordova um, that lets you create, it's like a tool chain, it lets you create um, a wrapper around your Google applications so you can install them on your phones. But yeah, so anyway, so Chrome apps, they're normally just HTML page applications, you know, kind of like... downloadable HTML5 applications. And so all this does is it gives you another tool. Chrome apps will work on iOS and Android platforms. Um, so if you were looking at using them that way and packaging them, I mean, you know, the, the ones that we see mostly out there uh, are things like weather apps and news apps and, 
you know, little things like that. Um, these are offline storage apps as well. So they were perfect to package in that way. Um, and what's it say in here? Um, notable apps are available. Pixlr TouchUp for lightweight photo editing. Wonder listing Google Keep for to oh Google Keep nice for to do listening. Pixlr is awesome. Is it? Yeah, I use that quite a bit. Yeah, so this must be a lightweight one, like Pixlr TouchUp, I guess. And then Spelunky and Tank Riders games. Um, so if you go to chariotsolutions.com/blog, Nicholas Kajak, Google's new mobile Chrome apps framework. What is it? So he took it apart. He said it essentially is Cordova, but instead of command line tool Cordova, it's CCA, um, and so that's what it's called. And then uh, they give you this org.chromium.something set of plugins. Uh, and then they let you edit a manifest file. It's a JSON file. Uh, and then you can run it like run Android or run, run you know, CCA run Android, CCA run iOS, that kind of thing. So he does kind of break it down a little bit. He mentions what some of the packages are. So for example, there's like a package for Google Plus integration, for Chromium OAuth 2 identity, uh, notifications, uh, runtime, there's a socket one for client and server sockets, storage. So pretty neat. Um, he does say, however, there are a few things that are missing. Um, it's not the full Chrome support. Uh, for example, there's no um, indexed DB access uh, or no web view tag, for example. Um, but anyway, so, you know, he, he has a nice little extensive article on it. I should have led with that, frankly. And I'll put Nick's uh, article in the show notes. Erlang. Erlang's getting bigger. Yeah, Erlang's getting some cool stuff. Now, you know, I'm not an Erlang expert by any means, but the VM's become very interesting to me. And, um, you know, sort of tracking what's going on with Erlang. For instance, there's the the, the uh, language Elixir, which is this beautiful Ruby-looking language that's written on the Erlang VM. But changes are coming to the big changes to the Erlang um, language itself, according to uh, the blog uh, Joe Armstrong. Uh, so joearms.github.io. Um, basically, the big thing is that Erlang now has maps. So obviously, maps are kind of like this thing that are really fundamental to many programming languages, Java, Ruby, Python. I mean, they're called different things, dictionaries, hashes, maps. But now Erlang has them. And it used to have a thing called records, which I'm actually not really familiar with the ins and outs. Maybe somebody else is who's on, the, on here. Mm -hmm. um, but... Um, Interesting, it has a couple different operators. So a one operator to put new keys in, another operator to update existing keys so you don't kind of goof it up. And, um, you know, it's it's cool seeing the uh, also um, names inside of functions and uh, a few other things. But, it, you know, it's nice to see Erlang still getting some love. How old is Erlang? Is it an older language? It's been around for a long time. It's like a t yeah, telco language, right? So Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Ericsson made it for their switches and stuff, I think. Yep. Segway, let's talk about a new language. Um, New-ish, anyway. So there's a person uh, out there, what is his name? Stefan Karpinski, uh, or Stefan Karpinski. Um, was a computer science grad student. Um, you know, he was a, a, a programming engineer kind of person. Uh, he liked these... Uh, what do they call them? Um, technical computing languages, like, you know, ones that do things like plotting like R does or, 
you know, statistics and scientifical methods. Uh, but he felt that every single one of those was purpose made for a particular task. Like if you look at, I, I went to an Android session on programming in the GPU and there's a very specific programming environment for that. And R is a very specific programming language. And, you know, I guess you could do something like Python and NumPy and StatPy or whatever. Um, uh, SciPy, I guess was what it is called. Yep, and um, Pandas. Don't forget Pandas. Pan, right, the one you mentioned last week, yeah. yeah. Um, so what he said is he, he, he felt that there needed to be a good lower level, um, well, I guess high level programming language meant for all these different types of things. Um, so a technical computing language. He says it's not really a web application syntax language, and it's not really a... Um, you know, a user interface language for like, you know, graphical interfaces, but it's really good for replacing things like mapping and reducing statistics, uh, mathematical approaches. Um, and so uh, if you look at the project page, which is at julialang.org, they have in the main features of the language, it does do multiple dispatch. So you can have function behavior across different combination types of arguments, uh, dynamic typing system. He uses a direct low level uh, virtual machine uh, coding process. So he compiles right to machine code. So it's really, really fast. Um, he has macros that are Lisp-like and he has metaprogramming facilities. He can call Python calls. So there's a PyCall package to integrate with py Python. Also call C functions directly with no wrappers or special APIs. He has shell capabilities for managing other processes. It's designed for parallelism and distributed computation. Um, they also support something called coroutines, which which he calls lightweight green threading, uh, among some other things. It's an MIT license. It's free. Uh, and so then he goes through and shows it's got a just-in-time high-performance compiler. And so, for example, um, if you look at the speeds of the different things that we're doing, you know, Julia hold, held its own, basically. Um, in some places, it was faster than something like Python or Fortran. Other places, it was slower. Um, but overall, it did pretty well. Yeah, I mean, looking at that, of course, this is the sound guy's micro-benchmarks, but it looked to be about the fastest, and that's also up against the V8 JavaScript engine, which is fast, up against Go's runtime. So according to this, Julia's uh, looks really cool. Yeah. So, and you scroll down to the bottom, the syntax did not set me on fire. Um, you know. Yeah, but it's so much better than R, which I can barely understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe it's usable that way. Um, and I did play around with it. I was able to, to take a little plotting example that they had um, and and uh, play with a sample and, and load it up and quickly do a plot of random walk through some variables. And it did well. I mean, it, when I did install a feature, it literally went out and started downloading and compiling stuff and throwing it in with, uh, with, with Brew, um, you know, setting up the bottles for all the libraries and stuff the first time. So it seems like it's got some install stuff built in the language runtime which is kind of interesting. Whereas normally you would just say, you know, I got to go install this while I've got to exit and physically install this binary package. It will install the package for you. So kind of interesting. Um, and then they show at the bottom of the juliolang.org page, they show um, an iJulia session, which is a web-based session, it looks like. And they use the project, a utility called Gadfly, um, using D3 as a rendering backend. And they have a nice looking set of graphs right there. So anyway... JuliaLang.org. If you're looking for new languages to play around with, especially in technical computing, you want to do statistics. He did mention in, in the blog article that uh, they were easily able to like fork a bunch of processes to do like a map and reduce with Julia, even though they didn't really plan on it being a replacement for map, map reduce. He said certainly it's something you could do with not a lot of uh, technical difficulty. So, so that's Julia. Also, who here has played around with closure? Yeah, I have a little. 
Have you played around with Light Table? Yeah, that's that's what I use. It's pretty neat. They just went open source, um, and they added support for plugins. I've actually um, used it for Python too, with uh, less success. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to have JavaScript integration too, right? Yeah. Basically, it's like a generic REPL tool, right? It is. It's uh, it's just different. It it um, it does require you to to sort of memorize a uh, a lot of uh, commands, which I, I guess you know you normally you wouldn't be that hard if you use it enough. I just found that a li- it's just a little weird. You pop it open, you don't have typical menu structure, you know? Right. There's some so, keystroke you bring up the menu with or something like that, or you bring up some sort of explorer with to, to pull down things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting. If you're learning, if you're learning closure, it's not a bad IDE to work with. Um, got you started relatively quickly. I was using that with those uh, closure cones. That's what I did. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty nifty. I remember when this came out like a while ago and I was, it was pretty exciting. So it's cool to see that it's open source. I'll try it out again. And then what do we have next? We've got uh, iOS 8 health book and open data. Mr. Joel? Yeah, so this is, um, you know, a, a kind of a big newsy thing that happened, which was that Apple basically said that one of iOS 8's primary features will be uh, this health book app, which will track all kinds of health and fitness stuff, uh, presumably using iWatch, which is also coming out as like a um, instrument, you know, to monitor all kinds of things. And, and until they actually know for sure, what exactly it'll monitor. I, I, probably a lot of guessing, but you yeah. know, more than just like your steps, obviously, and your blood pressure, but they were like talking about things like glucose or whatever. But interesting, the comments on it from Fred Wilson, who's <laughs> a really well-respected uh, VC, uh, venture capitalist. And so his, his blog, avc.com, uh, he talks about iOS 8 health data and open data. And um, what he was saying was basically that while he's been really interested in this whole kind of health data and health tracking um, kind of space, he's, he has come to the conclusion that uh, he was waiting on investing in this kind of space because he had to come to the conclusion that all the data is going to eventually be stored on the phone, that basically it's going to be mobile. So having that, I guess, like on your computer or something like that, he just wasn't really, didn't see that that as the future. And with Apple now producing this health book thing, you know, he, he, um, he makes a statement that the that the key will be the APIs, and that he's wondering if if Apple will give an open API. So, for instance, when you go to your doctor's office, he said, "I can see a button that says authenticate with HealthBook in my doctor's office, my gym's mobile app, my insurance, my health insurer's web app, and a host of other places." So, so really pretty interesting, and I think we could have this explosion of, um, you know. Um, health data being stored in our phones and, um, you know, and, and obviously Apple's betting iOS 8, you know, is a big feature on that. So, you know, I would, I would bet against Apple providing that stuff for any kind of thing that's free. Yeah. I'm sure that it would be, I, I, I would wonder if they're going to be the first mover in that space of providing external data. It could, but like, if you think of like Passbook, so Passbook is supposed to be like, you know, it stores your credit cards. I mean, it's really small, but applications can integrate with your passbook so right. that you can store your, your card there. So there, I think it'd be interesting if, if that's the idea behind health book, you know, but, um, yeah. it could, could be interesting. It'd be I interesting to watch. Yeah. I mean, I'm always scared when companies do this. Google did, uh, had a health thing uh, a while ago and I don't think it really caught on, but you could store all your medical records there. It makes sense. It's just very personal kind of stuff. Yeah. And I know insurance companies now have a lot of electronic records on you. You know, you can, sign into your health plan and, and get all of your medical records and your bills and such. And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's enough exposed data, but then if it's on your handset and someone roots your handset, 
my frustration yeah. is, uh, I'm actually dealing with this with my current medical provider, is the medical, you know, the primary care physician offices are really slow to adapt a lot of times to new technology and new workflows and stuff. Yeah, big time, big time, yeah. Regardless of what happens on this end, it's like if they don't adapt to it, it's not that useful. Though I have noticed recently almost every doctor I've seen in the past year for whatever thing has had an iPad <laughs> or maybe a laptop. So it is starting. It's I definitely starting. With their whole like appointment scheduling process. It's so, it's so like from 50 years ago or whatever with the, the place that I go to that I'm actually now considering switching to another place because I've had a few issues and it's been like super frustrating. I've wasted tons of time. Unfortunately, a lot of their uh, sort of their technical base is not driven by their own decisions. It's not like they hire, um, you know, some a good uh, technical crew to come in and get their office set up. A okay. lot of that, a lot of that is provided for them by people with a vested interest. Yeah. So, uh, like pharmaceutical companies, for example, and and other organizations. Which so, is why I'm wondering, like, for the Apple side of it, it'd be very interesting to see if they'll actually work with someone that takes control or gets control of medical records. You know, you're thinking of like, you know, when, you know, people wanted to put their stuff and sell them on other stores in addition to the Apple store. They're like, no way, sorry. You know, we own the customer record. We're not going to let you market to them. And um, it'd be very interesting to see how they butt heads with each other and figure out how to share it. But if they do, it could be a very interesting uh, new set of applications out there. Alrighty. And then uh, what's our last two here? So now we have um, Lenovo buys Motorola from Google. Yes, this was big news. Um, anyone want to take that? Who, who took this article? I threw, threw that in there. So, you know, it's kind of a failed experiment. Google buys Motorola. Everybody wonders what they're really doing. Are they going to take the hardware, you know, phones from Motorola, fully integrate the, you know, Motorola basically into Google and, you know, make these awesome phones. So to kind of reference the, the blog post or the article, techland.time.com. So Time Magazine, uh, Harry McCracken is the, is the author and, you know, he basically says that he's sad that the Google Moto dream is about to come to an end. So apparently Lenovo has been looking to get a space in the, you know, buy basically a cell phone manufacturer. They apparently had looked at uh, BlackBerry and that didn't work out. And um, and Motorola, uh, I guess Google has, you know, according to, you know, to uh, this author, hasn't really integrated it fully into Google, you know, has, has basically said that they'll kind of keep it sort of standoffish. And again, the author brings up, it sort of makes sense because Google's pushing Android. They're, Android's really popular, and they've got a lot of man, handset manufacturers using Android. So if they kind of compete with them, that always seems sort of weird. Um, but, you know, the dream of the super Google phone is kind of kind of dead. It's not going to be a Google-produced hardware for anybody who had that dream. <laughs> right. Who, who are they using now for their um, their current devices, like the Google uh, G, what is it, the G2 phone and stuff? Who is that HTC? I don't know the answer to that. Nexus 5, that we're, th we're thinking of the Nexus 5? That's Samsung, though. I'm pretty sure the Nexus nope, 5. Nope, oh, it's, it's not. not. LG. Oh, LG. LG, interesting. So they contract to LG. So it's Got interesting it. that, isn't that odd? They bought, you know, the, the mobile right, provider right. and they didn't, you know, the, the, ne the Nexus phone is an LG phone, not it's even not a Motorola right. phone. Why is that? I have no idea. Yeah, they clearly something didn't pan out for them there. Yeah. I guess so. And that is a nice phone. I just don't understand why they don't give you SD card access and removable battery, but oh well. But yeah. it is a nice phone otherwise. It's funny you mentioned Google. I didn't put this link up here, but did anyone uh, see an article this week or last week about a new form factor for the Google Glass? No. 
Uh, it's that, supposed well, to like fit better uh, prescription glasses, like normal uh, looking prescription glasses. There's a couple of models oh, yeah. that they're going to come out with. They just I announced did, did that, that they're going to provide pres- uh, prescription and sunglass uh, pop-on lens support. Right. Well. Yeah. So the prescription would be the replacement and then obviously the sunglasses will pop on top. But yeah. Um, yeah. I heard that too just this morning. Um, I wonder if it's going to be any less annoying though. Well, I mean, it actually, I didn't realize it didn't have it before because as somebody who wears glasses, there's a lot of people who wear glasses. Obviously, they could never use Google Glass. Yeah, it didn't support people with prescription glasses at all. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that seemed pretty limited. So are you, wait, are you, are you a futurist, but can you see 100%? (laughs) If you have 2020 vision, then participate in our program. And eventually you won't have 2020 if you use that all the time. Yeah, really. Keep looking up and keep squinting. Um, Keep squinting. That sounds like a really good, uh, a really good, uh, you know, marketing campaign. <laughs> <laughs> Google Glass keeps squinting. Yes. Uh, hey, we have this strange name on the next one. I've never heard of this Don Coleman. Yeah, actually, I think it's. Uh, no, forget it. I'm letting you try. <laughs> so I'm letting you try to mispronounce it. Donko Lehman. Donko Lehman. <laughs> That's Don- what I was going to say. So Donko Lehman just wrote a book. <laughs> yeah, you know, call so- him Donald. He loves that. Donald. So- Hey, Donnie. So our Donnie. Very own, wow, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> our very own director of consulting and mad scientist extraordinaire, uh, Don Coleman, yeah, has written a book. So congratulations. He uh, joins the uh, illustrious chariot authors, uh, Aaron Mulder, Ken Rimple, and uh, and Don now. And his is beginning NFC, Near Field Communications. So. With Arduino, Android, and PhoneGap. And actually, he's with Tom Igo and Brian Jepson. Um, and I know, <laughs> I remember when he started writing the book, he's like, I'm thinking of doing this book. And all I did was just kind of shake my head and go, well, I'll see you a couple of years from now when you come <laughs> up from there. But he's much faster than I am. I don't think it took him more than a year and a half. And, uh, it's a very in-depth book. In fact, if, uh, if you look at the, the Amazon link you sent under the, what's covering this book, it must be a Don book because you get to hardware and it's like, look at all the hardware you can play with. You know, it mentions you can you get an Arduino Uno microcontroller, an NFC shield, and then you can uh, play with a solenoid-driven door lock. Um, you play with a Darlington transistor, power supply, jumper wires, jumper wires. What is he doing? Um, <laughs> play with all sorts of really cool stuff. He has schematics and software. And so if you are a hardware hacker, this is probably the book for you, especially if you bought yourself an NFC uh, phone, like a Samsung Galaxy Note. Um, you know, you can play around with a lot of cool stuff and uh, learn NFC. Don Coleman's book, Beginning NFC, they're having a book signing party in Philadelphia at a place called National Mechanics. Great bar where they actually have a lot of, host a lot of tech events. It's going to be on Tuesday, uh, February 11th from 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Yep. And actually it says here uh, uh, RSVP. So you, do, you must RSVP so they can actually figure out the cost of it. Um, but it's a good place to go for it. And you get to meet Don and, you know, learn about uh, a little bit about NFC and about how things work. So it's a cool bar. Awesome. 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 All right. And also let me just check. I think we have a few new things, uh, podcast wise. So if you go to the chariot solutions.com slash podcasts, um, we recently did our podcast. We finally released it with Dr. Andrea Stefik, uh, using scientific research to analyze programming language syntax. Uh, and he basically did an empirical investigation to a different programming languages to find out, um, what 
makes a language stick, what makes a language easier or harder to, to understand. And it comes down to some of the language constructs. So, you know, he, he put uh, a couple languages against each other, things like Ruby and Python and Perl and Java. And he also had one he wrote uh, called Quorum, which he uses to teach visually impaired students. Um, and so he wanted to see what kept people in a language or made them have difficulty learning it. And interesting things were found. Uh, for example, like the double equals. He said that beginners in a programming language completely trip over the double equals. They don't get it. Um, and he said, surprisingly, on languages where equals means both a test and an assignment, people were fine with it, and it worked well. Um, and that's just one of a bunch of different things that we talked about. Um, so anyway, that's an interesting uh, TechCast. That's on TechCast 82. And again, if you go to chariotsolutions.com slash podcast, you'll see that. And then also, Tracy Wilson-Rossman and I put out one for the Business of Technology podcast, uh, we interviewed Michael Brizik, who is the Guilt Group's CTO, on how the Guilt Group got started with uh, their different projects and how they've ended up using open source technologies. And uh, ultimately, they leveraged something called microservices, uh, which is kind of like completely self-contained services that do things. They have their own little databases and such. Um, and they found that they could really scale their operation very easily by switching to that kind of model. Uh, and so we talk a little bit about that. We also talk about how they are starting to give back to open source a bit too. And some of their projects, like they have a schema evolution manager project that makes it treat uh, database schemas kind of like code. Um, and so they have ways to uh, deploy um, your changes in the database and then figure out a way to uh, roll them across different environments. So interesting talk. And from the blog's perspective, I already mentioned uh, Nick's post on NFC at chariotsolutions.com slash blog. So uh, that's all for the developer news for this week for Monday, February 3rd, 2014. Uh, again, if you want to subscribe, go to chariotsolutions.com slash devnews and you subscribe right from there. Uh, and otherwise, uh, for the dev news, I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Sujan Kapadia. I'm Eric Snyder. I'm Joe Kapadia. <laughs> and I'll edit out the spacing. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> the awkward pause. And I'm the spacing. That's right. And I'm the spacing. Alphabetically people, I would think. All right. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Yep. Thanks, guys. See ya. Time to shovel out. See yeah, guys. me too. Oh, All right, God. Good idea. It's going to suck. All right, bye. All right.